This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Toronto Film Fest. D&D Resurgent. Byronic Vampires. And Barbary Pirates. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for Players, Run for GMs, and Reveal the Book of the Weird for Everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. So uh, we're starting with the preamble hut this week because we're announcing the winners of our uh, Cthulhu Wars contest uh, run through the auspices of the fine folks at Peterson Games. The following four exciting Patreon backers will be receiving their uh, rare Yellow King figures, uh, all glowing in the dark and, and shifting reality under your feet. And those winners are John McAllen, Andrew Reichart, Robert King, and Ruth Tillman. The particularly maple-scented popcorn and the particularly polite clouds of smoke wafting in front of the projector tell us that we are entering a Canadian segment of the Cinema Hut, and what could be more Canadian than an international film festival held in Canada's world city, Toronto, Canada, Toronto, Ontario. Robin, as always, you've gone there, you've gone into the cinema mines, I guess, and excavated raw ore, and brought only the shiniest and most beautiful of the nuggets to the surface to discuss with them, with us, rather, today. Yes. Now, the nuggets were, uh, unfortunately, not quite as shiny this year. You Usually, said that the nuggets were substandard, that maybe the, the mine is tailed out, or you were digging in the wrong place, or a bunch of uh, jerks had filled it full of poison. It was a down year, definitely. I wasn't looking at my schedule afterwards and going, oh, there's the three masterpieces that I should have programmed oh, instead of the... Oh, Wonkar, why? No. That didn't happen. Uh, he's busy working on a TV show, an English <laughs> language TV show for that's, Amazon. That's going to be terrible. So, uh, maybe TV that'll be is- like that'll be as unwatchable as Wong Kar Wai, but as unwatchable as streaming drama. I can't imagine it actually coming to fruition. Yeah, I mean it'll be beautiful. Any individual still you could frame on your wall, I think, and people will be poignant. I'll be surprised if it exists. But instead of talking about television shows, we shouldn't that probably do that. won't exist. Let's talk Not about the uh, the perfectly fine though non masterpiece uh, movies that uh, that did exist. And of course, uh, you're you're looking at my list of capsule reviews there. Yes, I'm sure I am. you're going to pick out the particularly uh, uh, nerd relevant 
titles. The audience-friendly parts of the inaccessible world of foreign cinema. And we will begin with Les Affamés, The Ravenous, which is Zombies in Canada. Now, we've had Zombies in Canada in Pontypool, which is the greatest Zombies in Canada thing ever done. Tell me about this one. Well, now it's the second best because we have uh, we have Zombies in Quebec and we have Zombies in the uh, Wilderness in this time. And so uh, Pontypool uh, is a chamber piece. It's all set in one uh, radio studio and uh, you only get sort of an audio idea of what's going on outside. And this is set in the uh, great stillness of the woods of Quebec. And this is really a, an so it's example. zombie Wendigo kind of a little bit. Uh, well, you know, it's straight up zombies. I mean, but, but the, but the feel that is the Canadian wilderness spirit, the Wendigo, does it suffuse this or yes, is this film made this. in ignorance of this? Well, it never mentions Wendigo. No, well, it doesn't uh, have to mention it, Wendigo. It's in, it's in the great stillness of the forest. Okay. And, right. uh, this is an example of how a film can be uh, brilliant uh, through style without being uh, innovative in its subject matter. So as a zombie movie, it is just a straight up zombie movie, but it's extremely artfully made and atmospheric and takes advantage of the quiet and the uh, unconventional sort of wilderness setting. And it's just uh, all down to the execution of director uh, Robin Aubert. Uh, and uh, it does have, uh, you know, a bit of, it does have that Quebec, cultural spin on it with the sort of a, uh, an odd uh, sense of humor as well as a sort of uh, mournful uh, sense. And it's just an example of how just a classical movie that just uses all of the tropes of the genre can uh, be elevated uh, through uh, style and execution, in this case, a uh, uh, focus uh, on silence. But it's the silence that's punctuated by, you know, there it's an arty film, but then there's the full-on zombie uh, headshots, zombie heads blowing up and stuff, and uh, uh, of course, a couple of people in the audience at the film festival expecting the art movie side of it got up and walked out when uh, the first of the exploding heads uh, arrived on screen, and it's like, you did not read the program, did you? Well, if if Takashi Miike has taught us anything, it's that an exploding head can be art. Exactly. Um, has, has Aubert done other things that we might know them from or not? He's made a number of... I think this is like his fifth or sixth film, but I went back and looked at his filmography, and uh, this seems like a departure for him. Well, good. Good for good for you, Robin Aubert. I guess the next one that we sort of want to talk about, because it's sort of crimey and noir might be Brawl in Cell Block 99. Is that yeah, a so thing? this is by S. Craig Zoller, who uh, folks might know his western that turns crazy and violent and horrific, uh, Bone Tomahawk. Uh, and this is very much in that same model in that the uh, first Two acts of the film are about uh, dialogue and uh, also a sense of stillness and com supercomposed frames. So it, too, is a very arty film until at like a 107-minute mark or something like that, Udo Kier appears. Uh-oh. And, and, and it That's suddenly That's like the goes, old version of Jason Statham appearing. Yes. Uh, and so you know when Udo Kier appears that things have gone up an insanity level and all of a sudden it turns into a horrifically violent grindhouse action movie with uh, uh, crunching bones and uh, horrible gore effects. The plot basically is uh, Vince Vaughn plays the principled calm drug courier who knows what he's doing. He doesn't want to work with this particular guy who the cartel uh, insists that his guy uh, work with. And of course it all goes awry. He winds up in jail 
And then uh, Udo Kier shows up, and uh, the iceberg of violence below the tip of the violence you've seen from him so far uh, explodes in uh, true exploitation grindhouse uh, fashion because Zoller is an incredibly skilled filmmaker. Uh, the images uh, resonate in the mind for a long time afterwards. So that's a, a really uh, crazy, again, I say ultra-violent film. If you're not into that, stay away. Uh, but I think that's opening uh, sometime in October, so that'll get a, a yeah, theatrical release. Every bit. Well, it has Vince Vaughn in it. That seems to be the way that that thing works. Um, we seem to be, we're going to be saying Grindhouse and maybe even ultraviolet a lot, but uh, let's use Let the Corpses Tan, not just as an excuse to talk about that film, but also about what is the Italian Polizzoteschi, and how does it differ from, say, the Grindhouse or the Giallo, its neighbors and cousins? Uh, well, I think uh, Grindhouse is the umbrella, and and then uh, Polizzetti and Giallo and uh, the Spaghetti Western are all different Italian contributions to exploitation cinema. So the, the, the Polizzetti, in its classic form, is the 70s Italian crime movie, which is basically just another level of harshness and violence than you would have seen in uh, certainly anywhere else in cinema at that time. Uh, and uh, there's a real tradition of uh, super harsh uh, crime comics and crime fiction in Italy. And then, uh, so it's, it's just as Giallo is sort of a mystery genre with a layer of horror on top. This, uh, the Policetti is a, a police thriller with a level of uh, sort of horror style violence and also the same pervasive cynicism that you see through all of the Italian uh, exploitation films of the seventies. So, Although usually with a magnificent score. Yes. Um, and that's something that they all have in common. And now does let the corpses tan have a magnificent score. As uh, well? It does indeed. I think that like uh, this is by Helene Cate and Bruno Farzani and they uh, previously made a number of uh, sort of arty, uh, not giallo films per se, but comments on the giallo film, uh, The Strange Color of My Body's Tears, which okay, I right. I've seen that, thought yeah. was uh, great, and you, I think, wanted it to be a bit more of a regular giallo. I think um, it wanted, it, I, I wanted it to, to move a little bit faster in the tradition of the, of the classics, yes. Right. Um, well, this one is much more, it is a genre film in their style. Uh, okay. It's a crime genre film, and but everything is style forward. Uh, right. In a 70s Polizzetti movie, there would be a lot of sort of semi-boring expositional scenes, and then there would be set Guys piece. in an office talking. Yeah, and then there'd be set-piece moments that really brought home the, the the violence and the cinematic flavor. Well, this one, every single shot is an ostentatiously set-up perfect shot using, I think, period music uh, from the time, as their Jello movies did. Uh, mm. And the plot is basically a couple of motorcycle cops are trapped in a... A decaying old uh, pre-Renaissance uh, villa in the hill on the seaside uh, with a bunch of uh, heavily armed bank robbers and a, uh, a drunken author and his eccentric uh, artist partner uh, played by uh, Alina Lowenson, which people who people may remember from the Michael Almerita films of the 90s. And uh, it's a super style forward, a real punch in the face style cinema. And I thought uh, really refreshing. And again, uh, something where the images really will s stick in my mind uh, weeks afterwards. Continuing our Grindhouse tour through Toronto, and by the way, doesn't that sound fun, everybody? There's some bloody donuts uh, story. Uh, <laughs> this one is still in France. I guess it's it's back in France, and this is Revenge, 
uh, by Coralie Fargiat, and this is the Rape Revenge Grindhouse subtext, which in the wrong hands, and sometimes even the, in the right hands, is squicky and horrible. Is this uh, Almost invariably, uh, yeah. which is why it's surprising <laughs> that this film is so satisfying, but it's a detourned version of Rape Revenge from a truly feminist point of view. So, And the plot here is that a uh, rich guy's young mistress is in their uh, what seems to be like North African hunting uh, resort, and then his two buddies show up a day early, and they're not supposed to meet her, and they do. Uh, and then uh, there's the uh, sexual assault, and then she uh, they try to murder her, and uh, she almost sort of in a mystical way survives and uh, picks up the gun and kills some guys who need killing. Usually the rape revenge film, the squicky thing about it is that the rape is eroticized, and uh, you are expected uh, to enjoy that and then to feel self-righteous as the uh, characters uh, uh, who deserve to be murdered are murdered. Well, that part is uh, part of it, but the uh, it's directed by a woman. Uh, the um, visual sense is really acute. It's full of semiotic uh, symbols throughout, and the uh, there's no male gaze here. Uh, if anything, it is uh, the lead uh, villainous male character who is... Uh, uh, objectified, objectified, and uh, uh, it's. Uh, but the the style is is really acute. The scent, the bright color palette is very exciting. There's a couple of moments where it's like, oh no, this has just descended into what this is. But then it elevates itself back out again pretty quickly. So uh, again, uh, not for the faint of heart, but it is. Uh, it is actually truly. Uh, a feminist rape revenge movie. All right. And for that, uh, for the nine of you who are looking for that, rush right out and see Revenge. Yeah, but it'll, be on, are, uh, it'll be on the Shutter streaming service. We are, are going to move from uh, from there back to the safety and uh, placid islands of ignorance that are the zombie thriller. Uh, or is this not a zombie thriller? Is it a zombie think piece? The Cured by David Frayne starring Ellen Page. Yeah, this is a film from Ireland and it, it is a zombie think piece that then, uh, you know, zombie stuff happens, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, like it does, but it's most, it's about the aftermath of, uh, zombieism. And in this case, the virus, which is used in so many, uh, contemporary zombie films turns out to be a, a virus that can be cured. So, uh, there are a lot of people who are former zombies who are now, uh, being held, uh, first of all, in a containment center, but then there's a halfway house program to get them out and integrated into society. But the broader society has uh, problems with that. And so yeah, it's a... Like you might. Yeah. And so it's uh, there, there might be, let's say, a bit of a social metaphor uh, going on uh, there. Uh, really? Page, that, that, that would be new for the zombie genre, exactly, he said, with yeah. heavy irony. Yes. Um, <laughs> and Ellen uh, uh, Page plays the uh, sister-in-law. Uh, her husband is deceased, but she, her brother, who uh, was... Uh, part of the zombie plague, uh, she brings him into her house, and uh, that, uh, you know, it's a zombie movie. So, yep. so uh, there you go. It's a, a, a really interesting, uh, different angle on, as you suggest, the traditional political allegory of the genre. Well, we will, um, uh, I suspect that's the sort of thing that we could talk about for the whole rest of the segment, but we're not going to, A, because I haven't seen the movie, and B, because we have a magic octopus coming up. In All You Can Eat Buddha, Ian Lagarde filmed it. And tell us about The Magic Octopus and everything else we need to know. Uh, this is another Quebecois film. Uh, basically, it's sort of uh, a Boonwellian uh, Buddhist koan of a film. But it's set in a sort of a, a you know, a mid-scale 
uh, slightly down at their heels, a resort in an unnamed Caribbean island. And uh, this uh, man named Mike, uh, who seems uh, very somber and depressed and is uh, kind of eating himself to death, uh, heads down there and the, uh, he sort of becomes a spiritual figure or a figure of uh, envy for different members of the staff. And he stays on there past his original stay and uh, things get uh, weird and allegorical and, uh, and beautiful. So it is a, uh, it's less of a genre film. Uh, than it is a sort of a, a Boonwellian satire, but it's uh, it's great to see people uh, copying some Boonwell. I'm really yeah, Boonwell seems to have had a little mini renaissance. Um, uh, you know, if everybody's doing uh, Antonioni and uh, Hu Hao Shen, and I, you know, they could knock that off. We could have fewer Desica movies. Yeah, we're, yeah, we could never have another Desica movie, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we're done. People- People keep aping that one movie that Ajna Svarda did in 1955, and then she didn't do more of them, but the rest of world cinema keeps pumping them out. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's nice to see somebody uh, uh, borrowing a little Boonwell for, for a change. Yeah. I mean, Aronofsky got all Boonwell in Mother, so Boonwell is back, baby. Yeah. Get in on the ground floor. Now, from a uh, magical, crazy, surrealist genius to a different magical, crazy genius... We have Mademoiselle Paradis uh, by Barbara Licht, which is about our old buddy Anton Mesmer. Right. It's a it's a straight up biopic about. Uh, it's based on a historical figure of a, a blind pianist whose uh, pushy aristocratic parents took her to Anton Mesmer in the hopes that he would cure her blindness. And uh, it's interesting in a number of ways. First of all, it's a surprisingly sympathetic portrait of Mesmer. Uh, it uh, goes out of his way to portray him. Uh, not as a weirdo quack, but as uh, someone who held uh, a set of beliefs about uh, science in the body that were no crazier or uh, uh, less informed than anyone else's at the time. And the uh, lighting is also very interesting because you're used to films in this period being really burnished and beautiful and uh, showing you how lovely the the costumes are. Well, this uh, uses, at least at first, a lot of natural light. And so you see what these costumes would look have actually looked like in real life. And so you, and you see the line of the guy's wig, you know, and mm-hmm. which a real, you know, costume department in a costume drama and a ritzy production would never have allowed that to happen. But you see them, you know, the people are in these costumes are, are not so lovely. And then as it goes along and as he seems to kind of cure her blindness, uh, you get a bit more of a, a beautiful look creeping in, but it's still a much uh, more realistic uh, look at that period than we're used to seeing on film. Now we're going to skip Samui's song because I plan to see that in Chicago because it is in the Chicago and we're going to go to the Western. Uh, I'm glad that you found a Western for us, even if it's a Southern because it's five fingers for Marseille set, not in the South of France, but in the South of Africa, Michael Matthews. Um, tell me about uh, five fingers. Uh, so this is uh, again, where uh, allegory was big this year. And of course, uh, the, the, <laughs> Western, <wonder> <laughs> the Western is always about uh, society and, and what you do. And the theme of the uh, violent man who is tempted to pick up the, the gun again takes on a special resonance in this uh, metaphor for post-reconciliation South Africa. So, uh, you know, who is who is the good guy? Who is the bad guy? There's a lot of very, very bad guys. But uh, is there a possibility for redemptive violence that you can survive? And it's a really... Uh, it's got an all-star cast of uh, South African actors and gets the Western style down. A lot of times that uh, films that take on American genres from 
uh, the rest of the world uh, only sort of half-heartedly stab at the style, but this one uh, really nails it. So uh, five fingers for Marseille. If you uh, like Westerns and want to see it in a different social political uh, context, that's uh, something to check out. Cool, cool. Um, now, of course, uh, there is a John Woo film, which you say is only second-rate John Woo, which makes it first-rate everybody else still. Unless you're talking about uh, Mission Impossible 2, of course. Right. Uh, that's uh, Manhunt, uh, and it's a remake of a uh, Takakura Ken movie from the mid-70s and a tribute to him, but also very, very consciously a tribute to John Woo's uh, classic style. So uh, are there doves? Yes, of course there are doves. And of course, Woo shows you the establishing shot of the dovecote before the car crashes into the dovecote. Uh, right. But, you know, that that's a rookie question. What about freeze frames? Are there freeze frames? Yes, there are freeze frames. Um, now, it is somewhat overloaded. Uh, it, it credits like eight or nine writers and uh, Chinese cinema is going, commercial cinema is going through this terrible phase of overstuffed narratives where, you know, a whole meeting room full of people are getting together and, you know, there's too many elements in it. Uh, but having John Woo go back to his original style, even if it's only sort of once a thief level, uh, is still exciting and fun. Now, there's a lot more which people can find by going to Robin's blog and reading all of those lovely plugs, but many of them are films about grown-up people with grown-up problems and therefore kind of out of our purview for right. this segment. Or, or they're genre movies that uh, I wouldn't recommend. So. That don't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which we also don't want to watch. Exactly. Um, uh, although I do love, I mean, you know, the best, I'm glad that you watched Valley of Shadows, uh, which was terrible, apparently, just because I have already quoted um, as slow as one snail going to visit a second snail to discuss the possibility of ordering tickets to a Tarkovsky retrospective to four different people and gotten a <laughs> guffaw every time. So that line alone justifies you having to watch Valley of Shadows, as far as I'm personally well, concerned. Well, the description referred to a possibility of it being a werewolf movie. Yeah. So. No, I, I'm on your side, and I'm just yeah. glad that you took that bullet instead of me. That's, that's my job. Right. Okay. Robin, once more, a job well done. We thank you for your service, and we move on to yet another segment via a handily placed ad. Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pilgrim Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh. The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, and uh, the 
snack being whatever snack the kids today uh, prefer, some sort of uh, handlebar mustache Doritos, I think, is the new flavor. That's right. And uh, It's artisanal pork rinds. Right. And uh, I guess the, the gatefold uh, LP we're using for a GM screen this time, I, I don't know, what is it? The National? It's an ironically bought copy of Frampton Comes Alive because people got it from this podcast. Or, or maybe it's... Maybe it's the new Miley Cyrus record, which is actually weirdly groovy. Um, but anyway. <laughs> well, uh, we'll all right. Talk there you go. Now we're just going to have that played back at us endlessly by the kids because they're all into that playing things back. <laughs> but here we're t- talking about a very cutting edge thing that is also uh, a return of an old favorite. Over the five years that we've been doing this podcast, I think this is probably the biggest story in tabletop role playing, which is that D&D is back. It's had a big resurgence, a resurgence in spades. One that is bringing new people into the hobby uh, en masse. Uh, fifth edition has uh, all sorts of uh, movement behind it. It, uh, for at least for a time, was the best-selling, not game book, book on Amazon. Uh, and uh, the other amazing thing about the, the new uh, popularity of D&D is that it is bringing in uh, a new profile of people, and you can see that when you go to a regional con like Fan Expo that I was just at, and look out into the teeming throng of people showing up for uh, GM tips and uh, and so forth. And you can then see lots of uh, much younger people than we've been seeing show up for role playing events for a, a little while. That's not entirely new, but it's it's amped up a bunch, and the profile of those folks. Uh, looks a lot more like the profile of just regular people up in the street. To wit, I was talking to Jeremy Crawford at Fan Expo, and he says that they have now achieved somewhere between uh, 40 and 45% women playing. So uh, as the the thing that we've always said is a way to grow the hobby is to achieve gender parity. Yeah, and because suddenly you double your audience. Suddenly you double your audience, simple math, and it looks like the new D&D is on its way to doing that. The health of tabletop role-playing has always been dependent on having a healthy D&D. Sometimes people uh, will ask questions at a, at a show. It's like, how do you overcome the popularity of D&D? And it's like, I am all in favor of the popularity of D&D. <laughs> it's like asking the, the, the uh, defense minister of, Sim- of Singapore, how do you overcome the presence of the U.S. Navy? <laughs> it's like, we welcome the presence of the U.S. Navy. <laughs> Please come. Keep the pirates away. Yes, or, you know, even the... Uh, you know, plants dealing with the question of how do you deal with all this nutrition in your soil? Yes. What's what's the deal with all the phosphates? Right. So uh, I guess the questions uh, that we want to uh, toss around in this segment then are uh, what is responsible for the, uh, the great resurgence? What is it about 5e that has uh, managed this incredible feat? And then uh, perhaps we can then think about what consequences uh, that might have. So, uh, so Ken, what are your uh, thoughts on the uh, the reemergence of D&D is the undisputed uh, big kahuna of tabletop. Well, I mean, first of all, your conversation with Jeremy Crawford maps very closely to a conversation I had with Mike Merles a couple of years back, where he said that they were noticing two lobes to the D&D audience. And lobe one was everyone you and I have ever met and know. 
And it was the sort of um, uh, doughy Wisconsinite uh, segment that has always been the sort of uh, grognard stalwarts of the field and, and came back, even the younger, slightly less doughy, but still very Wisconsinite segment um, uh, when, when the new edition came out. And, this, and the other lobe was a lobe that was, as you say, younger. It was uh, uh, gender balanced. As far as they could tell, it was uh, more racially diverse. And they were not part of the what you, what you might call the core hobby economy because they were interacting with D and D almost entirely through Amazon, not through walking into a game store. And that I think would be the only, uh, troublesome part of that. But I suppose that if you are running a game store, um, it is on you to figure out how to attract people from Amazon, regardless of their doughiness. Uh, one would think the doughy people would be even harder to attract. And so that is maybe a, a, a subtopic for a later discussion. But the fact that this audience has grown up almost entirely electronically tells me that one of the things that is driving it is the omnipresence of electronic gaming that we have basically what I call the Pokemon generation, people who have never known a world without hit points. They've never known a world where you couldn't gamify your life. They've never, they've, they've never been conscious really during a world without even uh, cell phones and uh, and smartphones. So getting your entertainment electronically is ingrained in them in a way that it wasn't even for you and me, and even for the first wave of millennials, that these kids are fully suffused in that Pokemon environment. And when they get old enough, they go online and they look for things to do. And one of the things that has always appealed to a certain subset of 13 year olds is Dungeons and Dragons. And lo and behold, there's an edition that came out that is not trying to be a video game, uh, not entirely successfully and not trying to be a stereo instruction manual, but is instead a relatively simple, relatively straightforward, certainly very welcoming in terms of the art and other things. Uh, edition and one that is uh, being played online by people. And again, you would, I, I, as, as you said before, I still don't believe it happens, but hundreds of thousands of people watch people play games online and they don't just watch them play video games, which sounds tedious enough. They watch them play honest to God, tabletop role-playing games online. And that drives an audience to do that because unlike uh, other hobbies with uh, you can see the degree of interactivity and, and action that's involved in a tabletop role-playing game if you just watch it and so the question of how do you put the, a good dm in a box you don't put him in a box you put him on a youtube channel and that seems to be the secret to what is sort of uh, uh exploded dnd in the consciousness of of today's um uh you know teens and, and maybe by now 20 somethings I noticed a, a really interesting shift in the questions that uh, I'm suddenly getting at uh, GM Masterclass events at something like uh, Fan Expo that brings in people off the street, which is that typically the question that always gets asked is, how do I deal with the overbearing player in my group? Or how do I right. deal with the rules lawyer in my group? And for the first time this year, there were a bunch of multiple questions from people. How do I deal with the shy player in my group? How do I bring out the person who uh, seems uh, like they're not necessarily uh, ready to fully participate? How do I empower the the uh, the shyer person in my group? And I think that uh, I guess uh, uh, speaks well to perhaps a changed mix of people who are in uh, gaming groups. I think it's also interesting. I want to go back and uh, pull out a bit more about the way that the three different D and Ds that Wizards has produced. Uh, what their different visions were and why 
uh, five is the one that seems to be uh, ready for this big sort of demographic shift that you've been talking about. Uh, three, the mandate is this is the D and D that will explain everything. Right. That will always have an answer, and no matter how what level of detail you want, you as the GM are never going to be flat-footed by what that answer right. is. Right. Something will al- already be there for you, probably in a very complex stat block. Yes. And it's something that was designed to reward system mastery. Right. That, yeah. That very was, consciously. Yeah. That there were, th- you know, down to the fact that there were some feats and stuff that weren't that great, and you were supposed to be smart enough not to put them in your character sheet. <laughs> and the mandate for four was make D&D a really great balanced game. And I think it is a really great balance yeah. game. And again, I mean, I've, I've, I've played four and I've played three and there is no contest, which I, re- which one I would rather play. I love four, uh, as a skirmish miniatures game, as Dungeons and Dragons, it is maybe not everything that you would want, but as a skirmish right. miniatures game, it is great. Because it turns out that of course, Wizards, unlike the rest of us, has the money to do, uh, market research and do focus groups. And once they started actually talking to the, a broad pool of people who were D&D players or wanted to be D&D players, what they were telling them was much different than what you just get if you look at online forums where people are talking about D&D. Mm-hmm. Because the desire for more story in a simpler game is not something that you can continue to write about all of the time the way that you can about, you know, having the perfect ranger build or complaining that this particular feet is underpowered or this particular spell is overpowered. And and maybe I shouldn't be that guy, but it might be that the kind of person who wants simpler play and less story is constitutionally less likely to haunt message boards and discuss that desire in detail. They may Absolutely. be just as annoying. I mean, I don't want to... S- Everyone is annoying, Robin. You know that. <laughs> except you and me. And it's sometimes... It's the subtext of the whole show. Yeah. Right. But I think that maybe they express their desires in a less uh, immediately visible and insistent way. Yes. And when you take system mastery out of D&D and the, because the new uh, ethos is let's make it a fun experience, a fun story experience again, and worry less about it being a great game. And it turns out that it's a great experience, uh, perhaps even more so than it's a great game. And I think once you get system mastery out of that, the one intimidating person in your group who makes everybody feel bad because they know all the rules and are better at building their characters. Uh, Well, they're playing Pathfinder now. Yeah, right. No, (laughs) that's that's the other half of it, yes, is that that the the, the audience for 3.0 style D&D, which we should remind people is enormous, is gigantic, is many, many uh, uh, tens or even hundreds of thousands of people, has another game to play. And that's... That's actually great for the reinvention of D&D as not that. And you, you can very easily say in a very polite and respectful way to a customer who says, I want mastery. It's very easy to say, well, um, we may not have that in stock, but have you tried Paizo? They have tons of mastery. It's very masterful over there. You right. might be happier in a different uh, uh, room. And that may be why there are more shy people playing D&D who need to be brought out because they were perhaps intimidated by uh, by the game store where the uh, guy was hanging out by the counter uh, complaining about Great Cleave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they maybe are a little intimidated by that player. And so uh, by removing the system mastery element, I think that focuses everybody on the idea, again, of having a good time and having an interesting story. So is there uh, something specific that we can expect as uh, designers in, in the outer ring as we, uh, you know, traditionally the, the rest of us get to then 
play with the uh, D&D players who uh, still get the role-playing bug, that they want different flavors of it. Uh, and so what do we need to do as designers to prepare ourselves for the uh, osmosis of the new uh, 5e players than uh, some of them leaking out into the rest of the uh, hobby? I, I think, by and large, we've been preparing ourselves for that osmosis for maybe about eight years or a decade before it occurred. I mean, in a way, that's what a lot of not just the indie role-playing movement, but also a lot of the rules light role-playing movement has been about, uh, typified perhaps by fate, but certainly present in a lot of other systems. I mean, Savage Worlds now, I've talked to some of these, the, the, the kids today and the kids, I'll say, and the, the, my game is available in Savage Worlds or in Fate. And they will say, Oh, Savage Worlds. I've heard that's good, but it's a little, it's a little crunchy for, for, for my style. And I'm like, great. It's in, it's in Fate while inside saying, ha ha, you kids today, you don't know crunchy. Um, and so there is, I think a, there's been a, a shift just by designers away from, uh, overlarded, not overlarded. That's unkind. Over detailed mastery based, um, uh, full spectrum gaming into a simpler, uh, three dice and a cloud of dust type play that is sort of been preparing the ground for these, uh, folks to come over. So when, when they start spilling over, when today's 15 year olds go to college and, and have to play something besides D and D, because otherwise they'll be doing the same thing they did in high school, which is the worst thing you can do in college. Um, Fate will already have been there waiting for them, and Savage Worlds will be there waiting for them, and lots of other relatively rules-light games. Even the new Star Wars um, is more rules-light than most of the versions of, uh, after Gostikian's original brilliant version came out from West End back in the day. So I think that the desire to make games that are more about the table experience goes back to the sort of the... Well, it goes back to vampire, really, but it certainly goes back uh, from a design perspective to the the blossoming of the indie uh, role playing scene, and then now and, and so many of those games definitely had a design influence on Five E, right? It's yeah, no, a, absolutely, a it's not a one way uh, street. Yeah. street. And certainly, even with Gumshoe, right, when it first came out ten years ago, the response of people who uh, weren't uh, who are hesitant about it was. Oh, there's not enough there. There, it's just not crunchy enough. And now mm-hmm. uh, we're looking at ways to take some of the more elaborate uh, gumshoe games and and resimplify them even more because uh, it's not that uh, the people who like complicated games have gone away, but just that there are so many more people uh, now entering the hobby uh, who are uh, interested in the rules light side of things, and also people who have been in the hobby for a long time just don't have the brain cells to relearn another super complex system and are uh, happy to uh, go for something that uh, requires less homework. Yeah. And, and again, I do hear even now the, you know, uh, gumshoe combat is, is, is simple uh, as a problem from people. And they are usually of the Wisconsinite uh, lobe of the game hobby, which is fine. Um, and again, I, you know, I have my pushback on that, but the, that, that, criticism i have heard but i have yet to hear a criticism from the other hob from the other side of the hobby that uh gumshoe is too complex i think that something like knight's black agents uh or fall of delta green it does a pretty good job of of sort of pegging the edge of what um uh, of, of what the the second lobe gamer uh might be looking for in terms of of complexity and um uh, and flavor because rules also provide flavor as as we well know so having a rule in a place 
that may be just a reiteration of the previous game philosophy. And in many ways, that's a good way to do a rule. Also gives you permission as a GM to, to do things with it, gives you permission as a player to engage with it. And it allows you to maybe put some mechanical uh, bite into a scene that would otherwise happen, but might happen seemingly without consequences if the GM is not um, a story forward or story mean kind of uh, a GM. Well, that brings us to uh, another topic, which is the difference okay. between actual complexity and the appearance of complexity. And listeners, you all know what happens when we come across another topic which is we end the segment we're currently in and move on to something completely unrelated to either of them. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Help keep this podcast breathing by joining such Patreon backers as... The Esoteric Order of Role Players. Andrew Carey. Ash Jackson is the Scroll Bard. Brian Thomas. And Eben Lindsay. The graceful Corinthian columns, the plush uh, reclined lounges, the... Delicate frescoes ticked out on the walls, the mosaic on the floors tell us we've once more entered the stately yet classical confines of the mythology hut. But why, when we look closer at the frescoes and the mosaics, it shows people biting each other, perhaps in <laughs> sensitive erogenous zones. And yeah. there's an awful lot of red draperies hanging around between our Corinthian columns. Robin, have you lured us back in yet again to talk about vampires? And what is this unseemly fixation that vampires are holding on you, my beloved co? podcast host well uh as listeners know i when i when i promise something in one episode i endeavor to deliver it uh six to 120 episodes later you are a deliverer a deliverer and uh our last mythology hut uh was all about uh the uh, way that the serial killer has taken on the uh, mythic qualities of the vampire in, in pop culture and uh you observed that that's uh ironic because the vampire himself has gone on to take on a whole other set of uh, mythic qualities, and that is the uh, the vampire has become the uh, Byronic romantic 
hero, and that is both uh, romantic with the small r of the uh, character that uh, the viewer goes hubba hubba for, and also the uh, capital R of the figure who is, uh, yes, bringing death, but also uh, bringing a, a liberation from a, a stultifying uh, social order. So at what point, Ken, does the beastly predatory vampire uh, that we know from uh, Dracula and its precursors uh, start to become the uh, Frank Langella uh, or uh, True Blood Stephen Moyer uh, vampire? When uh, does he cross the line from a villain to a uh, hunky bad boy? The canonical answer to that question, which may even be the correct answer to that question, um, I'm fairly sure that there are other vampire literature uh, literatures in Germany and elsewhere that have, that have, that moved towards that before. But the answer for English readers and English speakers has canonically been The Vampire by John Polidori. And that is literally The Vampire's Byronic Hero because it is Polidori trying to take the piss out of his beloved employer, Lord Byron, and paint Lord Byron as a vampire. He gives Lord Byron even the pseudonym, Lord Ruthven, and I was I had the glorious experience at Dragon Con of being corrected in my pronunciation of Lord Ruthven by none other than Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, who says it's pronounced Riven. But if I said Lord Riven, no one would know what I'm talking about. So from now on, when you hear me say Ruthven, know that I'm doing it a purpose for you, my listeners. And if Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough is right, met, and that's that English pronunciation thing where the word that seems to be Gloucester is actually pronounced fish. Exactly. Or um, uh, it's not pronounced at all because they're really not our sort. Um, yes. But uh, Lord Ruthven, a.k.a. Riven, is a suave British nobleman who seduces a beautiful gentleman and a beautiful woman, and uh, specifically the beautiful woman uh, that is Aubrey's sister. Um, uh, Lord Aubrey is the or Aubrey is the guy who he also seduces. He's a pansexual bad boy, much again like Lord Byron. And Polidori thought he'd been very clever by writing a vampire story about uh, Lord Byron, only to discover that the book only sold when people thought it was written by Lord Byron. And then when it was discovered, it was just written by Polidori. Everyone said, "Eh." Don't care and, and junked it. So you're, you're tempting me to digress in the very worst thing that I saw at TIFF, which is a biopic called Mary Shelley with, <laughs> uh, with Elle Fanning is the only good thing about that. But let's, let's keep going. Let's, let's, let's move forward. Going. Let's, let's put the pedal to the metal. Anyway, that is sort of the, um, why is that Lord Byron over there? Why? Yes, it is Lord Byron. He's mad, bad and dangerous to know. Yes. Yes. Oh God. Just shoot. Just end me now. Yeah. The, uh, the bad biopic, man, there, if it's like, um, uh, the, the Sherlock Holmes line, when a doctor turns to crime, he is the worst of villains. When a biopic is bad, it is the worst <laughs> of movies. There is, we do not have to worry about my, the deaths I'm racking up. I will die young of a boating accident. Yes. Problem will be solved. Oh, but we digress. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but, uh, we digress in the, uh, romantic tradition of digression, but, right. uh, the vampire so in actually fact, predates Bram Stoker. Yes, it does by, um, uh, almost, uh, 80 years. Uh, it came out in 1819. Uh, Dracula comes out in 1897. In between then, we have, of course, the other great romantic vampire, which is Carmilla, who is a female vampire and has, uh, an affection for Laura, who is the 
a daughter of a English uh, nobleman or gentleman, at least living in the wilds of Styria in Austria. And it is a very sexy uh, novella uh, by Sheridan Le Fanu, who is Irish and um, delightful in many other and, and great at writing a horror story. So when Carmilla is both scary and sexy, I think that also helps to, to sort of screw that connection tight. Plus, Lesbian Vampires was just as interesting in 1872 as it is now, I feel. I feel that Lefanu caught the crest of a wave no one knew was rising. Right. Although Queen Victoria was willing to believe in vampires, but not in lesbians. But not in lesbians. Well, she'd, she'd met vampires. Right. Um, so, it turns out that the uh, our premise, perhaps, here is flawed, because it's not that the uh, vampire became the Byronic hero, but that they started out Byronic and then Stoker came in and monsterfied him for a while. And then the vampire reverted to form. Right. I mean, Stoker definitely is still playing with seduction. Uh, you can't read Dracula and not see the, not just the sexy vampire, but also the Gothic seducer in Dracula. He is that. And one of the things that people love to argue about in uh, seminars is to what extent is Dracula being the Gothic seducer to Jonathan Harker, but the straight up rapist to Mina Harker. And that unpacking Dracula's psychosexuality is a, it, it's been going on for a hundred years and no one has stopped yet. And, you know, God knows people need tenure. So I'm not going to put my oar in there, but Stoker makes Dracula sexy, but he makes Dracula sexy as a way of saying, watch out. He's sexy. You don't know that he's going to get up to activities. And so it's not sexy in the sense of you want to get with Dracula, or even if you do, you know better as the reader than you want to get with Dracula, but you want to warn the the vulnerable characters away from Dracula, your Lucy's and your Jonathan's and maybe your Mina's uh, away from Dracula. Mina, of course, being pure, there's no indication that she ever falls for Dracula. She pities him later on, but that's because of her greatness of heart, not because Dracula has sexed her so great. And the thing about uh, Dracula is it's not from the point of view of the character with the uh, yearning. It is from the point of view of the gang of fang blockers. Right. You want to stop. Uh, Dracula from uh, getting uh, this, uh, you know, swarthy Romanian from getting at the uh, at these English roses. Swarthy Hungarian, English. technically, but yes, right, yeah, um, and 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 yes, there is a a great deal of that. Um, uh, Dracula being a masterpiece can go as deep as you want to go, or as shallow as you want to go, and and that specific notion I think drove a lot of people when they began putting Dracula on stage and having uh, romantic leading men play him and then putting him in film and having romantic leading men play him. And that right, was because the adaptations take the anti vampire gang and move them further and further from the action. Right. And so by the time you get to the Langella Dracula, you know, Van Helsing is always there, but the idea of the, the gang of men protecting the women is uh, less and less a part of it. Uh, the Coppola one, uh, brings it back, but does so many other weirdo things yeah. uh, that you almost sort of don't notice it. Right. And, and again, Coppola's sexy Dracula, I think is hampered a little bit by the fact that while I have, I yield to no one in my appreciation for Gary Oldman as an actor, he's no Frank Langella. Let's just put it that way. And Badham's uh, Langella Dracula is done explicitly from the point of view of Mina as a feminist Dracula. And in order for her to, sort of thwart the patriarchy, she has to find Dracula attractive and he has to be attractive. Otherwise, it would be a movie about how being a feminist just gets you in trouble. And if you'd listened to Van Helsing, none of this would have happened to you, which is not a straight up feminist message, I don't think. And so as you begin to sort of recenter the narrative, 
because you're not writing about a thing that exists. It's not a medical text. You can make Dracula or make the vampire into whatever it is you want. And Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, of course, famously creates uh, another great sexy vampire in Saint Germain who exists as a almost a platonic commentary on how terrible humans are by being a vampire and yet being the best person around. And because he still feeds uh, on people, he has to feed on the emotional connection that he makes to people. And that's, I think, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough's contribution to that. And so you get the notion of, and, and she may, may have brought that in from the psychic vampires of theosophy, but she may have just, you know, come up with it on her own because she's very, very good. And in, and in doing that, um, having a, a vampire that sort of feeds on that emotional connection, I think that, uh, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough is, not just maybe drawing, like I say, from the psychic vampires of theosophy, but also playing into that sort of re-romanticized, with a capital R this time, vampire that Anne Rice had introduced a couple of years earlier with Interview with a Vampire, in which vampirism is very clearly a, um, it's, it's a, it's a metaphor for a lot of things, but very strongly among them, it's a metaphor for sexual longing. And that that is the curse of vampirism is to have this sexual longing endlessly, usually for another vampire, because otherwise it would seem ridiculous. And so the notion of vampires feeding in this sort of hothouse environment becomes, I think, the, uh, the the afterburner that blows open even the hints in Dracula and the straight-out statements in uh, Polidori and in Lefanu that makes the sort of uh, sexy-time vampire, you know, fully a part of the mainstream of vampire fiction, not just a weird um, uh, side note that people notice in Dracula and then go back to writing uh, proper monster stories. And then once you've got uh, women writing stories about vampires that catch on and become a new craze that then eventually comes to the, uh, devolves down into what is now the subgenre of the paranormal romance. Yeah. Uh, and it started out as being in love with vampires, but he had to switch that up. So now that, you know, there's uh, hunky uh, Byronic angels, hunky Byronic uh, werewolves, for all I know, hunky Byronic gray aliens. I think anything that we can think of, someone has got a romance series about, not just a, a one-off. There right. are there are hunky Byronic tulpas out there, uh, I'm sure. For example, well, this time you're mentioning tulpas. Yes, I'm, uh, which is you a don't sign get five bucks. <laughs> I don't get five bucks, but it is a sign that I've started watching uh, Twin Peaks. So exactly. Well, well. Uh, speaking of other things, we'll be talking about in the future. It's time to snip uh, this uh, segment, put a stake in its heart, put it back in the grave, and head on to our uh, final segment of this episode. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you.
the creaking of sails, the clash of the cutlass, and the boom of the cannon tell us that we are in a particularly piratical instance of the History Hut, a nautical instance, as it were. And this time, Patreon backer Jeremy French wants to know about the Barbary Pirates. And since this is a story that goes on for, depending on how you categorize it, a thousand years and has (laughs) all sorts of uh, fascinating figures, uh, we we could have a Barbary Pirates hut as part of our rotation and, and never get to the end of it. So this is our 101 on the Barbary Pirates. So, Ken... Uh, you're, you're the expert on, on 101s when it comes to history. Uh, where do we start? Um, we start in North Africa. North Africa is the Barbary Coast, which is the uh, uh, Renaissance version of the Berber Coast. The Berbers are the native inhabitants of North Africa. Uh, the Arabs uh, swept over and sort of conquered them and uh, turned them into Muslim states. But the Arab hold on something as far away as North Africa was always tenuous and eventually came completely apart after the Arab Arab uh, caliphates also came completely apart. So we had independent caliphates or usually emirates from uh, Morocco, from Algeria, from Tunis and from Tripoli and occasionally from other places. But those tended to be sort of the centers of power on uh, the North African coast, on the Barbary coast. And in order to uh, avoid uh, having to, um, you know, figure out what to do with a country that was mostly desert, they said, let's just go steal stuff from other people, a a time-honored tradition. And the stuff that they stole was very largely uh, slaves uh, from from other people. Yes. And usually they were Christian slaves because uh, then as now, the existence of religious differences gives uh, people with a profit motive and a fast boat a thing to do with that. And um, whether that is um, uh, Portuguese sailing up and bombarding Muslim towns or uh, Arab Corsairs, or rather in this case, Berber Corsairs, or in many cases, French Corsairs who had simply become Muslim in order to get in that sweet Corsairing business, um, sweeping down on coastal towns and kidnapping the people, carrying them away, selling them uh, for slaves and the ones that were sort of um, a good rowing stock. Uh, popped behind the oars to power the galley yet again, and thus create the naval supremacy in local waters. You Generally, the pirate ships did not have slaves on board, because you can just imagine how unsecure that is, but the ships that would be the shore defenses for the various uh, emirates and pashaliks would have slaves on board, because then the, the, the problem with, with boats is not the wood, the problem is the manpower. And if you can just in, enslave your manpower, your costs go way down. So this continues off and on, mostly on, until the beginning of the 19th century when the Americans, rather than uh, sign a treaty to provide a regular tribute to the Barbary Corsairs, said, well, we've got a, a brand new Navy, we think, um, unless Thomas Jefferson has right. sunk it. Uh, let's send and it to... The, the reason they had the Navy was b- these guys. Yeah. I mean, they first had the Navy to fight the hated British. Then they had the Navy to fight the hated French, but they kept that on the QT because the French were our lovely allies. Then Jefferson ended the Navy because it was a waste of taxpayer money. Then he realized that if he didn't spend money on the Navy, he had to spend money paying off Barbary pirates. So he would rather just send the American, uh, rebuild the American Navy, uh, brand new frigates, uh, technologically top of the line ships, and then sent them into war in North Africa. And that war, uh, went, uh, mostly, uh, the American way with one or two, uh, uh, exceptions. And it became clear enough that, uh, for 
a fraction of the cost of signing a treaty with the Barbary states. You could just send your ships to uh, shoot them that the British and then the French stopped signing those treaties. And it, the French specifically began to conquer the Barbary coast. And when the French conquer Algeria in 1830, that's pretty much the end of the Barbary pirates, because even the French are not going to be in the pirate running business, um, uh, at least on their own coasts. Um, if right. they still could have figured out a way to only raid the British, they would have done it, but, uh, wasn't going to happen. But considering that this started, uh, uh, arguably in the ninth century, that's a pretty good run. No, it is a good run. They did well. Yeah. The, um, the ninth century is, it's sort of hard to sort of separate what is a Barbary coast piratical raid from what is a straight up Abbasid or, or Umayyad caliphate or Ab- Abbasid caliphate raid, because at that time, uh, we, we have enough central control of the North African coast that it's not maybe in the letter of the term Barbary, but I guess if you're being captured from the south coast of France and taken away to be sold into slavery, those are technical details you don't care about so much. Right. Uh, Now, they did occasionally take people for ransom. The most famous one would be Miguel Cervantes. Uh, So if you were of uh, sufficient station and you were worth more uh, uh, to your uh, family to buy you back, then you uh, would be just as uh, an unpaid... uh, tortured labor uh you got to uh hang around on a on a ship or in a fortress long enough for people to make arrangements to uh, to get you back but uh as always in history uh being uh captured and forced uh, to run somebody else's economic uh, engine for them is uh, never a good deal now uh there are some very famous uh barbary pirates each of which could have their own uh segment and as you suggest some of them were europeans who decided to uh uh, move on over like uh, Captain Jack Ward, uh, who was uh, English and uh, called beyond doubt the greatest scoundrel that ever sailed from England, which is a uh, quite a distinction. Yeah, I mean, that's that's high praise in a way. I do want to mention, by the way, that this is not just sail across the Mediterranean nonsense. They did that, but also they were raiding Ireland. Uh, at, at many, many times they raided Iceland. So if you can imagine these, um, uh, triangle sailed Zebex pouring out of the Straits of Gibraltar and hurtling up to, um, uh, to, to, to raid Iceland. And as late as 1627, they're raiding Iceland. So even after Spain has been unified by the Castilians, they still don't have the ability to force project to close the Strait of Gibraltar to these guys. Although many of them obviously could sail out of the Atlantic coast of Morocco, uh, which was another very popular place for uh, Christians who did not want to live in the stultifying uh, uh, post-feudal landscape of Christian Europe, that a, a quick way to get out of that was if you had any sort of uh, naval or nautical skill, you would go to Morocco or uh, to a lesser extent to Algeria or Libya, and you would uh, turn Turk, as they called it, you would convert to Islam, and then... You would have a great gig because one of the things, as I mentioned previously, is the shortage of skilled manpower. That's the real, uh, control spigot on your, on the sides of your Navy. And, uh, if you turned Turk and became a, uh, a European, uh, Corsair, then you got a, a really good gig. You, it was like being, um, a head hunted by, by a really great tech recruiter, I guess, or the, something like the brain drain where people who've got a, a, a good degree, they might, that might want to move to Europe or America or Canada to do it instead of stay in, in their, um, uh, less, uh, uh open minded backwater. And in fact, as much as half of the Corsairs operating out of Algiers or out of Tripoli in the late 16th century were 
a European. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Uh, so they were uh, Barbary only in the uh, sense that they just gotten some new shirts with uh, Barbary written on them. Right. Yeah. They, they had the uniform and they sailed out of the Barbary coast, but they were not of themselves barbers. Yes. There were a number of corsairs uh, over the centuries who decided they would disrupt piracy. <laughs> yeah. um, there's the, the Barbarosas, the red beards, Mm-hmm. Uh, who were, uh, I think, working more directly for the uh, for the Ottomans. What do people need to know about them? Uh, the Barbarossas are uh, basically sort of private contractors for the Ottoman Empire. Uh, they're called Barbarossa because of their red beard. Um, people have said maybe that means that they were European, but maybe it just means that... Uh, that they knew what dye was. Right, that they knew what dye was, or that uh, the Turks had interbred uh, a great deal with the uh, Greek uh, populations of Turkey, and so you could get a red beard now and again. And Central Asians uh, are much lighter uh, complexion than you imagine them to be if you look at your various pictures. So the Turks being Central Asians, again, red beard does not mean European. But they were um, uh, cool uh, corsairs and great uh, sort of admirals as well. So they had sort of a, do I want to say a unique skill? Maybe not a unique skill, but certainly they had a gift for both uh, pirating and for um, uh, working with the Turkish Navy to uh, advance Turkish war aims. So the Barbarossas, for example, would... uh, be, I don't know if they were even deniable. They were just, you know, they probably flew the Turkish flag plenty of times, but they would be basically privateers um, and sent after the Spanish Navy when the Turkish Navy was busy doing something else. And they, um, they weren't, you know, invulnerable. They got beat uh, and soundly a couple of times, but they had enough strategic depth to be able to come back from that in a way that other pirates maybe can't do. Uh, and there were also uh, Sephardic Jewish uh, pirates who were, uh, expelled from Spain by the Inquisition and said, well, if you're going to do that, uh, we're going to fly the Ottoman flag and uh, come right back at you. So exactly. Uh, Samuel Palash is a famous example of that. And um, there are other, um, uh, there are Dutch pirates um, who were so mad at the hated Spanish during the Dutch 80 years war of independence that they said, rather than fight them here where it is cold, I will fight them in Morocco where it is warm. And so um, Suleiman and Murat Reis, who were, who became admirals of the Algerian Navy, uh, were both Dutch. They were, uh, Devenbor and Jan Janzoon, another Dutch corsair. Uh, Dan Zecker became another legend. Um, and these guys sort of combined, uh, North European shipbuilding techniques with, uh, and ship sailing techniques with the, the, the Barbary Coast piracy model to create, um, extraordinarily dangerous ships because they, were able to take a a, a more powerful a cannonade and put it onto a, a ship that would sail around in the Mediterranean. They were very much sort of the uh, rogue nuclear scientists of their day, taking their their tech down to the to, to, to the enemy, mostly just to keep shooting at the Spanish, not necessarily for any great uh, desire to to become Muslims. But again, the pay was much better, and the working conditions were probably nicer. And and Danziker uh, allied with the aforementioned Jack Ward. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the uh, the enemies of the Barbary pirates or the targets got the, the worst of both worlds. They got uh, uh, European engineering know-how and uh, the uh, forces of the uh, Ottomans and their uh, their cat's paws. State-sponsored piracy, which was, of course, was almost all piracy was state-sponsored in, in one degree or another. Yeah, the, 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 the sort of the so-called golden age of piracy is almost the only truly freelance piracy that you have. And even that 
can't, could not function without, at the very least, state collusion. So big parts of the uh, colonial American economy were driven by piracy because that's where you would get things. And if a guy shows up in Rhode Island with a chest full of solid gold goodies, you don't say, do you have provenance for that chest? You say, let us help relieve you of this chest of solid gold goodies in exchange for coffee and tea and the finest that Rhode Island can provide you. Uh, and it's, and so the, the line there between state sponsorship, between privateering and between piracy has always been, uh, murky. And again, the only way to end it is to, as uh, we mentioned earlier, to change the state so that it no longer does that. And that was the, uh, purpose of the Barbary Wars by uh, America. And, and the, the great thing is that America sort of backed into this because Previously, they were under the British treaties that said you're not going to harass British ships uh, because they were uh, owned by the hated British. And so once we became independent, the pirates were like, this is the greatest day of our lives. We love American <laughs> independence because it means we can attack all of these rich Yankee ships that we couldn't attack previously. And that was sort of the the impetus to um, uh, eventually cause the Barbary Wars uh, in 1805. Yep. And it's the beginning of, well, we're going to have to establish a hegemon in order to keep our uh, uh, American flinty uh, business enterprises going. Mm-hmm. So we're going to need to back that up with some gunboats. And I wasn't the... the uh, Last time that happened. No, wasn't the first, wasn't the last, but it was the first time we did it. Well, it was the first time we did it at sea. I guess, you know, the Shawnee Indians could say, uh, excuse me, you guys were doing that on land for like 80 years first. <laughs> right. Uh, well, uh, as we're heading into a completely other topic, then it looks like uh, we have to uh, cut off not only this segment, but this podcast. But never fear, listeners, we'll be back again a mere seven days from now to lay another four topics, which will blossom out into like uh, 16 topics next week stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games pograin press ask Fagelm, arc dream dark tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by james semple audio editing by rob borges get your priority question asking access by supporting our patreon at patreon.com backslash ken and robin fortify your ports against piracy alongside such patrons as Kaylin Kadiev, Lee Carnell, Louis Sylvester, Paul and Cleo Bushland, and Raphael Pobst. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>